Seattle's most consequential offseason in years continues as the NFL enters the free agency period. With the ashes of the Russell Wilson trade still smoldering and the draft quickly approaching, the Seahawks have some big decisions ahead as they reimagine the team's future. Few people understand Seattle's schemes and philosophies better than Griffin Sturgeon, who joins us to break it all down. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with restricted free agent producer Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts podcast. Mike, how we doing? Pretty bored. I feel like there's not much going on. The news cycle. <laughs> not a lot slow. happening. Yeah, it's just I'm. Uh, I need some excitement. What do you got for me, Jackson? Well, let's see if we can manufacture an episode out of today. I'm actually really excited for today's show because we are bringing in one of the most unique voices following the Seahawks. He comes equipped with one of the sharpest understandings of how the Seahawks approach the game, and I can't wait to get his opinions on Seattle's offseason. He is the co-host of the Seattle Overload podcast with Matty Brown, and if you're on Twitter, you know him as C. Mike Spin Move. Please welcome Griffin Sturgeon. Griff, how are you, man? Doing all right. Thanks for having me on. Like like Mike said, we don't have a lot to talk about, so we'll do our best to scrape the bottom of the uh, barrel here. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I mean, honestly, the Seahawks have elevated being weird to an art over the last decade, but I'm not sure any of it tops the last couple of weeks. Shortly before we started recording, the Seahawks made a couple additional free agent signings, and Pete Carroll and John Schneider held an extensive press conference to address the Russell Wilson trade, Bobby Wagner's release, and the direction of the franchise in the aftermath of those two decisions. So let's start with the Wilson deal. It is, without question, the biggest swap in the history of the franchise, and we've now had a few days to let it settle in. What was your reaction at the time, and have your views on it changed since then? Uh, When it actually happened, I was shocked because... I thought that it was going to happen next year is why I was shocked. Um, I was for the longest time, I was a believer that all the drama that occurred last off season was just for us trying to wrestle back the narrative after a not so good end to the season, um, which was with well within his right as a player and, you know, all that, all that good stuff, player empowerment. Um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't think it was coming. And then the, for the 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 story or the idea of him getting trading, I just wasn't dying uh, this offseason, so I thought maybe it was real. I just thought it wasn't realistic. Um, I didn't think Seattle had a lot of options this year to actually find a new quarterback. So I thought I wasn't shocked by the concept of them actually going through with the trade, both sides of it. I just thought it would happen around this time next year. So when I actually read the news, I was in shock because um, I wasn't expecting it this year. Um, that said, uh, it's not good when you have a franchise Pro Bowl All-Pro quarterback and he's no longer on your team anymore. So it mm-hmm. obviously um, puts Seattle in, in quite the hole. They, they did get a nice haul back. Um, I understand some thinking they could have gotten more, uh, you know, three firsts as opposed to two firsts, although two seconds doesn't count for nothing. So Noah Fant's a good player. Shelby Harris is a good player. Um yeah, a lot of it is just noted omission. Drew Lock. Yeah, Inten- <laughs> intentionally omitted. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there there probably wasn't any realistic trade package that would have made Seahawks fans happy in the moment. But given that Wilson had basically left them with one viable trade partner, I actually thought they did pretty well. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing is, you know, even though I said I thought it was happening next year, but when John mentioned that uh, John Schneider, that is. 
We're not on the first name basis. Um, yet. When he mentioned... <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, w- when he mentioned that they didn't think Seattle was going to stay, or excuse me, that Russ was going to stay in Seattle when he was an eventual free agent, it makes sense that his value would decrease as he approaches that free agency year. So they kind of had to mm-hmm. strike while the iron was hottest. And it was probably going to be cooler next year. So maybe they, you know, they had to do it. Now, if if trading Russ was unavoidable for whatever reason, it's unfortunate that they didn't take that Bears trade last year because Justin Fields was attainable. So, you know, that kind of would have been an ideal scenario. You get a rookie quarterback, a promising rookie quarterback, rookie contract, and you probably get a butt, buttload of picks too. So, you know... I, let's well let's let's talk about that because I've I've seen some of that going around. So my understanding is the trade that you know they're they're talking about Khalil Mack and Akilah Witherspoon and three first rounders and all that stuff. And it, I I don't think there was a whole lot of fire to that smoke. I think the offer that officially got reported was two firsts and then a couple of players that were technically starters, but then they got cut like the next day by Chicago. Uh, it would be awesome if they were able to turn you know one of those picks into justin fields but i think that this package from like a trade value standpoint is more than that the other thing is they were coming off a 12 and 4 season you know there there was right a lot of reason to think like they could keep this together make some tweaks and really compete yeah and that's why i was so skeptical like i I, ultimately i agree with you like this is kind of hindsight for me um yeah, they get coming off a 12 and 4 season. And I thought that's why I just assumed a lot of it was just narrative spin. You know, like the Russ took, we were, if we can remember, Russ took a lot of heat after that Rams wild card game. Yeah. Like probably the most public national criticism he's ever gotten. So I thought it makes sense. You know, Russ is, this isn't a negative. He can be sub- subversive or subtle, really, is the word I'm going for um, when it comes to kind of controlling how he's perceived. And because he's not, He's not an abrasive person, which I think is a positive thing. I'm not saying this is negative. Um, so I thought, well, everything's adding up here. Like I just think, you know, they're gonna they're gonna regroup, and um, you know, he just kind of wants to get some heat off of him. I understand whatever. I, I can't fathom why. Like why would he want to run away from what they have right now? Surely they can, they can do, um, they can do better. And when they hired, you know, the McVeigh guy after. Russ seemed to not be so into the idea of firing Schottenheimer, but they go ahead and turn around and and hire you know someone from the McVeigh tree. I thought, well, okay, this is probably the uh, the beginning of like a new two three year outlook. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, that said, I think the the return that they got from Denver really isn't that bad. They can do a lot of damage with this if they're if they're smart with it. That's you know, easier said than done, but yeah. What they got in return is a lot of dominoes, and if they set them up correctly, it can lead to a, a pretty great outcome. But there, it introduces a ton of uncertainty. Like you got to nail these draft picks, right. and you got to hope that these players are contributors. You know, I've seen a lot of fans say that anything less than three first round picks is a loss in the deal, and I get that. I totally get that. I would contend that the two second rounders, a pretty high one this year and then Denver's next year, are actually worth more than what is presumably a mid to late first in 2024. And then on top of that, they did get some pretty useful players in addition. So yeah. I don't know, man. I it, it seems like they made out all right given given the situation. Although it's worth noting that you know we talk about how Seattle only had one realistic trade partner. 
Denver <laughs> only had one realistic option at a franchise quarterback true. after Aaron Rodgers signed with the Packers. So it it was almost like this arranged marriage where they both <laughs> were kind of like negotiating with leverage they didn't really have. Yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of yeah, you're right. You you know, you just sold me on that when you mentioned they wouldn't see that first round pick till 2 years from now. You know that third one, the 2024. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a great point. They're getting 2 seconds in the interim. Like that's and then the value of Noah Fant. I mean, what would Noah Fant go for in a trade? A second round at worst, I think. So I, th- I think so. Yeah, he's still only twenty four. He was a first rounder three years ago. He's a free, and so, he is. He's a free. He is, and and the thing that I think is important to remember with tight ends is you really shouldn't judge a tight end until year four, and there's a couple exceptions that come in and are good right away, but to play tight end really well, like at a really high level, of the NFL. Uh, you know, standard, you are learning two positions. You need to learn everything the offensive line knows and everything the receivers know. That's hard on a young player. With a lot of these guys like Noah Fant, you're just the best athlete on the field, so you go out and be the best athlete. So I'm actually super excited about Fant. Yeah, and I would think that Walger and, and Dickerson are too, um, and the entire offensive staff. So, yeah, I think I'm content ultimately with the, uh, with the, 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 the return. Um, it's just that, you know, anytime you trade any team ever that has Russell Wilson and any hypothetical parting with him, you know, it's, it's going to be, you're, you're treading some interesting water. So yeah, yeah, we'll just, we'll see what they did with it. Totally. D- there was a great bit of investigative reporting that dropped, um, from Albert Breer this morning. You see that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. De- detailing the kind of CIA ops level, <laughs> negotiations that, that got us here, but also going back as far as 2018 and 2019 and, and some of the tremors that turned into big waves by the end of it. Uh, and a lot of what was in there also tracks with, uh, what Michael Sean Dugar hinted at when he was on the pod earlier this season that this this breakup was kind of in the works for a while and and it finally just culminated. But it also is echoed by the threefold statements delivered this afternoon by Pete Carroll, John Schneider, and most notably Jody Allen, all stressing that Russell Wilson made it clear he was ready for a new opportunity. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think it will be. Because we're never going to get objective clarity from either mm-hmm. side. And sh- certainly fans have theories, well-reasoned theories, as to what what started it. I think ultimately we can conclude, though, that by the end, regardless of who initiated it, by the end it was certainly mutual. So I think R- Russ's word choice wasn't inaccurate. Seattle might dwell on what they thought started it, hence wh- why they said what they said. The other thing is that they have a rabid, angry fan base. So... The, the first thing they're going to do is say, oh, this wasn't us, right? Even if yeah. even if it's true, or even if it's not true, any, any team would say, we didn't want to part with the future Hall of Famer. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, but if, if it was brewing from the beginning, certainly we all remember how 2018 ended, the, the Dallas Cowboys game, uh, with, you know, a lot of running, right? And um, really only passing in must-pass situations, third downs, et cetera. So... Yeah, and 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 that 2018 year sticks out of out of mind for sticks out in mind for a lot of people, and probably including Russ. Um, for me, I mean, I see. I, I think Pete certainly thinks he could win any given year with Russ running that much. Um, 
and not to get too deep into it, but I, I think he was just as willing to do what he did the two years prior to 2018 and then the progression post-2018. Um, even coming out of the year firing Shoddy for supposedly passing, I mean, who knows what it really was. It could have been over more specific things. But in 2021, in the Rust games, before Penny kind of popped off and had unworldly efficiency, they were passing more than the Packers were with Aaron Rodgers this year in the Rust games. So, they were. So at least, you know, early down neutral state. Ben Baldwin has a fantastic site, does a lot of work. I like to play with the filters there, the tools. Just the Rust games, I mean, they're passing like 57%, which was their 2017 rate, in early downs when the game was still within reach. Um, however, you know, the, the, um, the model calculates um, neutral state or like win probability within a certain time frame. So it really wasn't until Penny started like averaging per carry what some quarterbacks are averaging per pass that the running game, that the pass rate started to tank. And I think that any team would be smart to do what they did, just, you know, like harness that. Now, that, that doesn't mean – now, surely those numbers will regress because it's just unrealistic that any offense would sustain that, even if they kept all their personnel and everything, right? But sh- surely Peak expects that number to regress, but we'll have to see how much he wants to rally around with what he saw with Penny to end the year to open, 20, uh, open 2022, regardless of who the quarterback is. So that will that will be interesting to see. Um, lots will be interesting to see, though. Yeah, totally. And, and a couple of thoughts there. I mean, there's no question that the running game is going to regress on a per-carry basis. But when you're averaging seven yards a carry for a month, that's a lot of room to regress and sure. still be excellent. Still be the best, and, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I think that it's, it's important that you know when we've had these conversations on this podcast and in the articles it's not you know passing is better than running or vice versa i'm a huge fan of running the ball frequently if you're running it well the frustrations for myself and for a lot of people is you know leaning on the run in first down and long second down and long situations when you aren't running it well when you've got Alex Collins getting you three and a half yards of carry or whatever, if you're going to run it anything close to what they did to close out the ceiling, like let's be a run first team. I'm sure. totally good with it. Sure. I totally 100% agree. Like the whole run to set up the pass thing is an antiquated way of looking at it. Although I, I do wonder if that's just been a phrase that has populated discourse, media, even coaches and um, and press conferences. And that's, and they've, packaged it as an oversimplification on purpose um but so the, the whole the whole run thing i yeah. do think there is something to that so so here's here's what i see we can isolate this if we just look at under center right now in the league for 90 percent of teams 90 percent of under center passes are play action like right now like ever since like starting 10 years ago that trend started to happen so that means that any under center, early down under center pass is tethered or tied to a run formation or just like what otherwise would have, would have, could have been a run, right? So we just looking at early down under center snaps, we know exactly because only under center runs set up under center passes and only gun runs set up gun play action, right? Or under center play action, that is. So we can, just looking at under center pass rates, given that 90% of that is play action, we know exactly what any given coach thinks about how much you have to run in order to play action. And ever since 2012, Seattle's under center pass rates, considering the fact that 90% of those are play action, 
Seattle's under center pass rates have always been in the top half of the league. And in most years, they've been top 10, and recently they've been like top five. 2018, that was their lowest in recent years. They were still like 34%, which is 1% less than the Rams were that year. So Pete Carroll has never actually thought that you need to run more than you need in order to play action. If you're just looking at under center, where his view of what the run game can do for you, I think is more, or where it gets more tricky, I think with Pete, is when you look into shotgun. Um, and that's where I that's where I really start to like try to pick out what does Pete really mean when he says balance. Um, there was a quote when he was with USC, and he said like by the by the end of the game, you know, ideally you're fifty fifty. That's college. That was also college twenty years ago. That was when Reggie Bush could average a first down per touch. So like he probably wasn't far off. But I mean, he was referencing like Mike Shanahan, the the '90s Broncos and stuff. Like that's what he thinks mm-hmm. offense is. And Look at Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan runs more than Pete does in the NFL. Like, yep. So even Kyle's most pass-heavy year, 2016 with Matt Ryan, I mean, Seattle passed more than Shanahan did the following year in 2017. So um, I, I, th- I think it's a mixed bag. But So not to ramble too much, but and maybe this is more about Pete than it is Russ, but um, when you look at gun and what Pete thinks about balance, if you just kind of – if, if you divide past concepts up into, you know, you got just for gun, you got gun play action, but then you've got quick game, the intermediate concepts like five-step passing and then seven-step passing, deeper drop back. The, the meat and potatoes of any voluminous passing game is built on five-step passing. Like 40 to 60% of most quarterbacks that we consider good, like there's 10, 15 of them, they're living in five-step passing. If you think about it, it's intermediate. So it's kind of like the best of all three worlds in terms of short intermediate and deep you can throw a deep bomb right or you can throw a little hitch in the flat or you can attack the middle right whereas quick game is you're just trying to get the ball out get an easy completion or seven step passing i mean if you got the protection you can use the whole field but you're probably thinking you're trying to time up something deeper or something longer developing right Um, even if you're attacking the intermediate might take longer to get there so if you look at russ's numbers this even goes back to his rookie year He's he's kind of he's below average in terms of success rate in five step passing. So if you think snap to snap consistency, it's not there. Now his EPA per play and five step drops are high because he's hitting the five step fade. But how many fades can you throw in a game to the point where you're getting diminishing returns? So w- when when Seattle every year when they ask themselves how much more are we going to pass, they're thinking we already are maxing the amount of play action attempts we're using. We're already maxing the amount of, say, arbitrary cutoff of pass attempts of over 20 yards. We're already using as much quick game as we can with Russ. And Seattle actually is like top five in quick game usage, not just of like a percentage of passes, but like volume snaps. And Russ is stable in quick game. He gets the ball out. That's where you get easy completions with him. So they're, they're thinking we've maxed all those things. What's left? Five-step passing. All right. We, we, we do enough of it so that we can get the fades, but then where are the chunk gains, gains coming from that? That's where a lot of the negative plays are coming. That's where most of the sacks are coming. That's where a lot of, you know, the scrambles are coming. And yeah, he might create make something happen, but then he might also have to throw it away or run out of bounds or scramble. So then Pete has to ask, ask himself, if we can't do more quick game, if we can't do more shots, if we can't do more play action, even if it's not a play action shot, then what's left? The only thing that's left is the run. 
Now, he's not saying run in order to replace the production per se, but you need something to balance out the tendency of quick game so that defenses don't just squat on quick game, as in like, you know, like a, a, a hitter at the plate, you know, um, s- sitting on a certain pitch expecting it, right? Like defenses eventually are just going to expect quick game if that's all your tendency shows. So it's really about varying tendency without, without sacrificing, with, without... Um, it's about varying tendency without the negative plays. Now, obviously, a stuffed first down run is not positive, right? So that's that's the that's the big question. If they can get their average run attempt out of gun to mimic their um, to to equal more or less their average quick game completion, which is like four to seven yards, it's not very exciting, right? And that's assuming they complete it. Then I think that they're approaching balance. Um, now, if what makes 2020 interesting is that that was Russ's best year in five-step passing and his, his um, success rate that year was only average. So we're talking going from bottom of the league to merely average for, and that almost gifted Russ an MVP. So that, that shows like, so, so my question is for the team then is what can you do to improve Russ's numbers then? And really the answer to that is just improve everywhere on the team rostering wise, you know, the, the more, the merrier, um, my thing is always get Jimmy Graham, another Jimmy Graham, right, to to complement DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. That's where you get those chunk gains. Even if it's a one-read deal, like Jimmy Graham running 12 yards down the field and turning around on a little curl or like a deep stick route. It's like Russ got so many completions out of that. Now just imagine yep. if he had, well, even Doug Baldwin, but also Metcalf to complement that, right? And maybe that was their answer. But so every year, every year when Pete asks himself, how much are we going to pass? He's not looking at the under, under center sample. He's looking at the gun sample and saying, how many of these five-step concepts do I need to replace with running? And how much don't I? The other positive to running, to gun running, is that the more you gun run, the more you can gun play action. And Seattle is always is often near the top in total volume attempts of gun play action as well. And that's where Russ does well in. That's where you gain back some of the lost efficiency in five-step passing so that you can sustain drives. But it, all in all, like, the biggest thing with Russ is that high EPA per play and low success rates, like over the whole sample, um, not just like divvying it up, like the whole thing. So that's, it's, you know, shots and then it's, you know, wanting consistency. So that doesn't mean that Pete executed his vision or executed um, his intentions there, but I think that was his intention. So I think how much he runs with Russ and how much he didn't just a little more complicated than just simple Pete likes running for the sake of it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I appreciate the granular breakdown because we do tend to just put things into buckets like, oh, when they pass, they're this successful. And when they run, they're this successful. I'm guilty of that. Some of that is for brevity's sake. But sure. also, it's just really important, I think, that if we are going to have nuanced conversations about these things, that we really do understand it in a more detailed sense. And and I think that was really helpful. However, Russell Wilson isn't here anymore. No, sir. And so we've got a quarterback room that's comprised of Drew Locke, <laughs> who John Schneider reportedly liked a lot prior to the 2019 draft, Geno Smith and Jacob Eason. Not exactly the most inspiring collection no, of signal callers. No, sir. <laughs> I would really, I would really love to hear like John Schneider come out and say, just like, we fucking hate Drew Locke, but we needed a quarterback. Right. Have you seen yeah. this guy? Yeah, exa- exactly. I know. I know. I saw 
I saw some people bemoaning the way that Pete Carroll was talking up Drew Locke in the press conference today. And it's like, I mean, what are you going to say right. about it? Like, ah, I can't believe we're stuck with this asshole. Yeah, right, right. Well, and you always know that when Pete isn't fond of a guy, his his he still his word choice changes. When he really likes a guy, it's almost when he really likes a guy, he's just more to the point, you know? Like Earl Thomas, he's just a natural player. Like talking about him 10 years ago, Earl's just a natural. Like, oh, okay, that's what Pete means when he likes a guy. Even though the the book is not written on Jordan Brooks, the way he talks about Jordan Brooks, he's like, oh, he's just a really good football player, right? That's what Pete says. Whereas when he's talking about another guy, he goes on a soliloquy about like, oh, you know, this guy can do so much. We really like what, just, you know, a bunch of bullshit, right? Yeah. So I'm hoping that's what that was with Drew. Now Pete is going <laughs> to accentuate the positive, especially in camp. You're not losing anything. Like hype the guy up, yeah. right? It doesn't hurt. Um, my hope is that um, uh, Drew Locke uh, never see, uh, sees the field. So um, right. I, I would rather – okay, if, if they're – just before we get into like more in-depth discussion with quarterbacks, if they're going to go into 2022 with the quarterback that we all want to like stop watching the Seahawks over – I would rather just find out what Geno Smith has, you know, than Drew Locke or Jacob Eason, you know, like, it, it, I mean, get Eason out of my face. That, that's whatever. But I do think that there is an interesting conversation to be had about Geno Smith. Let me ask you this. Do you th- expect either Drew Locke or Geno Smith to take the majority of quarterback snaps for the Seahawks this year? I don't. I think that they either trade or draft someone or both. You have been banging a couple of weird drums lately. I mean, this is what you do. You are a weird (laughs) banger. But Ryan Tannehill, Matt Ryan, Matt Ryan Tannehill. Talk to me about it. Yeah, those are the two. So I think Ryan, I think it's as simple as I think he sells a lot in the tank. And I was watching him recently. To be clear, I actually really like both of these quarterbacks. Right. So, I mean, Matt Ryan's a good quarterback. I think he's fringed top 10 if not the 10th best quarterback after because I mean I have to actually think about like how many good quarterbacks there are right now young ones mm-hmm. um, I think Ryan is still right there I think he's been on horrible Falcons teams I think that the Falcons supporting I mean part of the reason why is that they haven't had Julio and Ridley on the field together for full 16 games the past three years so that's part of the reason why like the, the GM whoever it was probably had more intention than what they ended up getting on the field but long story short the Falcons, I think, have the supporting cast that many people in the Seahawks fear think Russ has had. Um, right. So I, I, I think that Seattle, even if however you want to make comparative statements, I think Seattle offers more support for Ryan than Atlanta does, um, especially with the addition of Noah Fant. Like, that's exciting. Um, so um, I, I think you can have a I think that you can have around the 10th best offense if all things go well with Matt Ryan, with the personnel they have right now. That's even before the draft. Um, and they might make some moves at tackle. Trent Brown, we'll talk about that. Um, so, yeah, I think you can you can do a lot with um, Matt Ryan. Now, Tannehill, um, I, I just, based off of what happened in Tennessee, I think Tannehill's pretty good. And we know that what, why I'm being more, like, odd about it than I would be otherwise is that uh, Pete loved Tannehill during the draft process. And I think why he liked him is because he reminded him of Matt Leiner at USC. Uh, They access the same areas of the field and they take the shots that are there. Now, nobody can access deep balls like Russell Wilson. Like Russ makes explosives happen that most quarterbacks 
wouldn't even think about. And like they planted their flag on that very concept, like that's been their offense the last 10 years. Um, Tannehill isn't on on Wilson's level, but he can certainly, if it's a one-on-one and the guys, if DK Metcalf has even a quarter step on the guy on a fade, Tyler Tannehill's going to hit that. He won't hit it at the crazy rate that Russ will, but he's going to hit most of them to make you feel like you're getting your money's worth out of DK Metcalf. So um, the other thing is that looking at the scheme that they've ran uh, in, in, in Tennessee, uh, Waldron can totally run that. So, and the only other thing is that maybe they don't quite have a receiver that is, that is styled precisely like AJ Brown. Um, but they kind of can mimic what Corey Davis did totally fine before he left this past year. I think that Tannehill would kind of open up some of Lockett's route tree. Now, again, it would close some of it down, like for the same reasons about, you know, the, the deep shots, right? But Tannehill might be able to access more of Lockett over the middle um, than Russ could maybe. Um, I don't know. I just, I think for the same reasons Tannehill would work, I think Pete loves Tannehill still to this day. Um, there was a report that he loves Kirk Cousins. I don't know if that was true, but that was from a reputable person. If he loves Kirk Cousins, he probably still loves Tannehill. And I think Tannehill's better than Kirk. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about a group of quarterbacks with Tannehill, Ryan, and Cousins that are all a lot better than the conversations surrounding them. They're just they're not super exciting anymore, right? right? But they're they are so much better than most quarterbacks. They're they're better than at least half of the starting quarterbacks right. in the NFL and an argument to be made for closer to two thirds. My my fear with bringing in one of those guys is I don't think any of them are as good as Russell Wilson. They're all going to cost as much as they've been paying Russell Wilson, maybe not as much as Russell get on the next contract, but they won't they won't be saving any money over what they've been paying the quarterback position by bringing those guys in. So, so to me, it, it seems like a similar cost basis for a lowered uh, ceiling in terms of expected return. So it would certainly make them more watchable. My, my fear with that is you are now locked into quarterbacks who will probably spend the next few years, especially with new talent coming in between 12 and 18 in terms of the quarterback rankings and you're paying them good money and it it keeps you from drafting someone either this year or next year sure um yeah that's the thing so whoever they acquired the contract is really like the biggest deterrent right um if so apparently that restructure that ryan did that would make the falcons incur even more of a dead cap it for this year didn't actually go through if they do indeed trade for the guy that no one should be trying to acquire from Houston, in my opinion, I'm sure in many people's opinion, um, then that means Ryan's available and that restructure is definitely not going through, right? So that would make it easier for Atlanta to trade him. I don't actually know what that means yep. for Seattle's numbers, but that makes him more available. If they do acquire a vet, do they try to restructure that deal? Because Ryan has an absurd cap hit even more for 2023. Um, I think there is a scenario, though, where they they trade for a guy that raises their floor for 2022, at least after Russ is gone, not not relative to Russ, relative to Geno Smith and Drew Locke. Um, and they could still um, draft one high. Now, that would be really annoying if they were to draft a guy high and trade for an established quarterback just because it's like, well, you have your quarterback splurge on a, you know, a on George Karloftis or Sauce Gardner or whatever at corner or whatever. Um, 
But hey, if you get two really good years out of Matt Ryan and you think that you can compete with the roster surrounding, and then his arm indeed falls off on the field, and you're like, okay, whoever, Malik Willis, Desmond Ritter, whoever, get out there, go go do something, and maybe they're ready, then okay, then you've got that guy. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what direction they go in. It's it's tough because they almost have to make that decision before the draft. Like there's a gamble if they say, you know what, we're we're going to go after Willis or Matt Corral or whomever. Uh, I don't I don't really see Pete being into Kenny Pickett, and those are kind of the three first round guys, uh, consensus first round guys. It's if you if you go Tannehill, Ryan, whomever, Baker. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that you're drafting a quarterback this year, but if you don't bring in one of those guys, you're, you're kind of counting on your guy. Let's say it's Malik Willis. Who's he's the only guy that I would be happy with at nine. I, yeah. I would actually be pretty damn excited about that. He's Malik Willis being the starting quarterback in 2022 is, is probably my preferred outcome. Although there are a number of ways to having, you know, a number of different paths you can take to a successful starting quarterback. Sure. I'm I'm leaning towards that. I I would rather not settle is too harsh of a word, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's not too harsh of a word. I I would rather not settle for the guys we're talking about. I would love to get some real upside, some real athleticism and excitement and and basically just breathe some life into the franchise a little bit and also have them be cheap for a few years. Yeah. Um but I mean Malik Willis is there's definitely over they're not one for one comps but there's definitely overlap with Wilson um I think that Wilson was far ahead of Willis coming out of Wisconsin than than Willis is right now no question part of it the 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 downsides to Willis right now and there are you know enough to give people pause part of it though I think I attribute to is coaching staff saying like we don't need you to be better than you are. So we're not going to invest in coaching. You really like, we think your floor can help us dominate our conference, which is kind of what happened. Um, th- th- there's a lot to do with him. Um, he comes out a lot, comes out ready. Like, you know, the, the deep bombs, he can make, you know, far hash throws, like insane throws. Um, the, he ironically, even though he's about six one, he doesn't go over the middle a lot. Um, uh, I, I think that he was probably underused on, on play action. I think Seattle would probably take advantage of that more. Um, just as a passer, though, he's just underdeveloped. He, it's because he hasn't had the chance to, like, he hasn't been coached yet. So that inherently makes him a, a project. Um, another guy, that I haven't really watched much of Corral and Pickett. I've kind of eliminated them from my thought process. I'm not sure why. But the other guy that I do like in this draft is Desmond Ritter. Ritter, to me, is... Yeah, um, fun. I mean, he's... I think that... Shane Waldron probably says, if you give me Malik Willis, we will throw touchdowns. If you give me Desmond Ritter, we basically have a a smart, like significantly smarter Jared Goff. So, and I think Ritter's arm is better than it shows. I actually don't think when he played against better competition, I don't think that um, he had a bunch of support. I thought like when he played Notre Dame in Alabama, it showed how under-talented Cincinnati was compared to those other guys. But I mean, he is a you know, the, the terms processor, cerebral and stuff. Desmond Ritter is all of that. And he makes some, like he anticipates like crazy. So 
I think Waldron's like, if you give me Ritter with Metcalf and Lockett and Fant, we are just, just getting completions everywhere all the time. We're marching down the field, and we'll, we'll still hit the explosives. Yeah, that, well, that's that's the exciting thing about Willis. You know, I, I think that Pete, for as much as we want to paint him as conservative and, and maybe his biggest bucket from a, a play call standpoint is conservative, but, man, does he love the home run. I he mean, the he home run. just loves it. And and I, I like Ritter a lot. He's actually – Ritter's kind of freaky athletic too. He's a great the, mover, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. the The thing with – I mean, he tore up the combine. The thing with Willis is there's just – it's that Rodgers, Mahomes, Wilson on the run, 60-yard Pandora's play. box. The, X the stuff that just – yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Josh Allen, that kind of thing where it's just like – Every coach just wants to be like, I can mold this guy. <laughs> you know, just give me these tools. Exactly. And so, to your point, now the main difference between him and the guys I'm about to mention is about three to four inches in height. But right. Mahomes was not who he is right now at Texas Tech. Josh no, Allen was a bad quarterback prospect at Wyoming. Like, he was not a good. And then, um, I mean, prospects in the terms of the traits were there. Yeah. But outside of traits. And then Justin Herbert. Um, was complete. I mean, maybe it's because again, Oregon's saying we just need your floor. We don't need to develop you. Justin Herbert has progressed mightily. I mean, he's a he might be one of the best process processors in the league right now, like up there with the elites of the elites. I mean, he's amazing. So, quarterback evaluators might be looking at Mahomes, Herbert, Allen, and thinking, why can't we, you know, scrape into that with with uh, um, Malik Willis? So. Uh, who who knows? I see I so. see a lot of he's he's smaller of course, but I I see a lot of similarities in style between Malik Willis and Trey Lance, who is another drool worthy quarterback prospect, and and that that just it just seems fun. I'm ready to have some fun with this team, Griff. Yeah, me too. I think either Ritter or Willis would be fun. They'd be fun for different reasons. Um, I'd probably geek out at Ritter more, but I would embrace the concept. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're drafting Willis, you know what you're getting. You know what you're signing up for, that is. You know what you're planning to do. Um, it's it's And it's on the coaching staff, whoever drafts him, to try to maximize that. Um, so, yeah, if, if they want to draft Willis, go ahead. If they want to draft Ritter, go ahead. Uh, it's, it, sounds like, it sounds like Willis is going to be the first quarterback taken. Yeah, just based off of media hype and and the way that the people are talking about him. So, um, you know, where there's smoke, there's a fire and all that. So, yeah, and we'll it s- would be it would be really rare for the first quarterback of any draft to last until pick nine. That's true. That's true. So if he goes, if Ritter's sitting there at nine, do they take him? I think most most years yeah. Ritter is a guy that you take like. I don't so like last year Ritter probably I think Ritter should go ahead of Mac Jones, and probably you could argue over Lance last year's draft. You like him that much, huh? He's so the more the more you watch, the more you realize like oh he knows how to play the position, like he knows how to play quarterback. Zach Wilson does not know how to play quarterback still. Um, Mac Jones certainly knows how to play quarterback, but Ritter can create more like like the idea of creating in structure. Doesn't get talked about, and like when people use the word "create" in quarterbacks, they're thinking scrambling, right? But mm-hmm. a lot of these guys can create in structure, as in like speeding, speeding themselves up, slowing themselves down, pocket work, right? All that stuff. Brady and Rogers, man. Brady and Rogers. Aaron, Aaron Rodgers isn't winning the last two MVPs because he's running all over the field and twirling right. about. That guy just manipulates the pocket until he's got a window, and then he can throw from wherever he's at. 
So Ritter screams that. He doesn't have Rogers' arm, of course. I think he ha- I think he has an arm that you can make do with. It's better than Jared Goff's, for example, but it's not Aaron Rodgers. Um so I, I think, yeah, I mean, shoot, Ritter might have gone if you I mean he, he there was probably an argument for quarterback three, quarterback four last last year. Um I could still just as easily see him going fifth though. Um the hype train for Zach Willis got kind of crazy. Um so I don't know. It, do, does Seattle take him at nine? I don't. I don't know. Well, we're gonna we're gonna circle back to the draft in a little bit, and I, I do want to talk about a little bit of game theory there. Uh, but we are fully entrenched in the first wave of free agency, and there have been a lot of headlines surrounding the Seahawks uh, over the last three days, starting with Monday when things were unofficially official uh, through today. They started out by retaining Quandre Diggs, Will Disley, and Al Woods. They did all of that pretty quickly. And then today they added Artie Burns, a cornerback who enjoyed some success with new assistant head coach Sean Desai in Chicago. A couple hours later, they announced the signing of Uchenna and Wusu, an exciting playmaking linebacker from the Chargers. And then uh, right before we got on, Austin Blythe, a center who was with the Chiefs and before that, the Rams. Am I missing anybody? Uh, outside of uh, DJ Reed's exit, I don't think so. Well, and that's <laughs> and that's just it. And we'll we'll get to that in in a bit. But let let let's start it with the in-house guys. I was over the moon about Diggs coming back. He seems like not not only is he a great player, I think he is an elite coverage safety, which no matter what scheme Seattle trots out moving forward, that is like the linchpin of a Pete Carroll defense. So really happy to have him back. He also just seems like the ultimate glue guy. And when we had Corbin Smith uh, from SportsIllustrated.com on, he was talking about how when things were bleak, Diggs was the one getting the guys together, keeping them upbeat, all that stuff. It's it's really hard to overstate how important a guy like that is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that the the number one thing I wanted out of this free agency period was Quandre Diggs' retention. So he's mm-hmm. he's a Seahawk for the next three years. He got a good chunk of change. It's it's unfortunate that Detroit didn't switch him to safety because he probably would have cashed in sooner. Um, you know, because he, he got. He, he got paid all right for a nickel corner, but, you know, it's the, this career shift form really paid off. Um, yeah, um, I, I, I agree with everything you said. Linchpin of the scheme. Um, it's just a great player. He prevents – I mean, the number one job is to prevent plays from happening. So he prevents plays, but then he can make his plays when he gets the chance to be closer to the action. Um, and, like, the run support, like all the hits he makes out in the alley, right, yeah. just coming down. He's such a good tackler in space. It's not like, uh, oh, he wraps you up and, and holds you until the next guy gets there. One of the most impressive traits a defender can have is and, – and Cam Chancellor is the best I've ever seen at this. Ed Reed was amazing at it too, Palomalu – is it's not just wrapping up and tackling in open field. It's putting the hurt on dudes, being so confident in your ability – at the contact point to level guys in open field. And Diggs is really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he rules. He's awesome. Um, <laughs> what else is there to say? I was kind of nonplussed about Disley. I was happy about Al Woods. He's great. Three and a half million all day long. Love sure. him. Yeah. Dis- Disley, you know, it's three weird, years, right? 24 million. It sounds like it's probably more like two years, 16 or 17 million, depending on how you chop it up. I don't know. If his contract is what kept them from uh, paying DJ Reed what the Jets did, but man, it just it just maybe you can maybe you can make it make sense. Is is the number two tight end that valuable? So the only reason the only rationale I can have for this is well, 
aside from the fact that however much he should have been paid, I think we all agree that he has, you know, some value, right? Like he's a yes. good, yeah. So, but then the other thing I think immediately too as well, Waldron and Dickerson must have campaigned for this. Um, and then there is a report that he had other suitors. Like I can't fathom Will Disley causing a bid war among teams, but <laughs> uh, evidently it's it's a thing. So yeah, it does feel like they overpaid. It's a four and a half million dollar cap hit this year. And I nine feel like I feel like hit. it's people fighting over bananas at the grocery store. Yeah, like just go get different bananas. There are lots of bananas. There's there. always more bananas. So I mean, yeah, he is a good blocker, um, and he probably. I mean. Any every opportunity he's had in the past game, he's delivered, right? It's just he doesn't have like crazy traits. He's got smooth hands, he's a smooth route runner, but he's not a fast route runner. He's not a quick route runner, but he the routes are clean and all that stuff. Um I, I mean He's one point three Jacob Hollisters. He's one point three Jacob Hollisters. So yeah, it's it's a little baffling. Now, as far as the the, the scheme that they run absolutely needs two tight ends. Because um, when they go into twelve personnel, um, it's they need one guy on the line of scrimmage, one guy off the line of scrimmage, and uh, it sounds like Noah Fant. Well, there's merit to switching them around because Noah Fant's athletic after the catch. If he's off the line of scrimmage, he can be catching things in the in the flat and run with it. If he's on the line of scrimmage, you can get him out in the pattern and and running deep. So maybe they really appreciate Disley's route running more than like we're able to see because you know he's lower on the depth chart in terms of total targets like you're going to prioritize other guys maybe they think with a differently styled quarterback not necessarily a better one they can get more out of him maybe this signals what they're going to do quarterback wise like i i can fathom desmond ritter getting a lot more out of will disley than russell wilson but i definitely can't fathom just to you know keep it honest i definitely can't fathom desmond ritter getting out of dk metcalf what Russ did. doesn't mean desmond ritter wouldn't use DK Metcalf, but you know, it's, you're just making comments on style there. So, um, I, I, I don't, it's, it's a head scratcher. Um, it's definitely, it, so I don't know if it, how that impacts DJ Reed, the cap hit this year was low enough that I think that if they wanted to really pay DJ, they could have, um, but yeah, I agree with you. This is, I'm scratching my head like everyone else. The only positive is that at least he's a good player. He's just not going to be returning value on it next year. Um, this year yeah. he probably will, but you know, here's so so coming back to DJ Reed, I he was I cared deeply about keeping three of Seattle's uh, free agents, Diggs, Dwayne Brown, and DJ Reed, and I get it. Cornerback is a premium position; it's going to carry a premium price tag with it. Um, what I'm hearing is that kind of the base of the offer that he accepted with the Jets is three years, 33 million, but based on performance can go even higher. That is a steep price tag, but I, you know, I think it's well-deserved. I don't think that's an overpay by the Jets. I feel a little bit better about it with them bringing in Artie Burns uh, for one year, $2 million. And, and I think that that's something that if he is 80 or 90% of DJ Reed, okay, you can justify saving the $10 million a year there. Tell me about your thoughts with that. Yeah, so I'm right there with you. My, my number one thing was Diggs, Reed, and then, like, at least on defense, was was bring back Diggs, bring back Reed. Um, I was I'm, I was a big believer in their secondary last year, like what it could be if everyone you know stayed healthy, quote-unquote, as the saying goes. Um, so them not bringing Reed, I mean, totally dampened my spirits. Um, that said, 
bringing back Sidney Jones and, and Trey Brown. Trey Brown's month of play, he, he, granted he had a gruesome injury, but his month of play, and then combined with Sidney Jones, the, the final six weeks of the season, if hypothetically you could ensure that you could get that Sidney Jones for 17 games and that Trey Brown for 17 games, then you're totally fine at corner. It's just you're remiss to assume that that can happen, right? Like it's it's an yeah. inherent risk. So I don't know. Artie Burns has had an up and down career, but his most recent play um, has been really good. And we can assume that Sean Desai vouched for him. It's, he hasn't just been really good. He's been also very good in man coverage. And that's what Carl Scott and Sean Desai and Clint Hurt are going to be doing this year. They're going to cut into their cover three percentage with more cover one. So and now they've got three corners. Um that they uh, that they probably like for that, um, and and so, conceivably Marquise Blair and Ugo Amadi are, are part of the picture as well. Absolutely, right? I, I would assume so. I would, Jamal Adams too. Yeah, I would assume so. And Ryan Neal. So they actually, right. as it stands right now, they have the personnel to be very diverse with who, what type of skill sets they put where. Now, this was something I, I'm not just saying this after the fact that we lost DJ Reed. I said this beforehand. Sidney Jones of those the three main corners last year I thought I think he has the best feet of all three of them despite being taller and longer um DJ Reed is he was even though he's a shorter guy he he's all technique and scrap and smarts he actually isn't as quick-footed as you would think for like oh a short perimeter corner he must be really shifty and everything now he has good feet like I'm don't get me wrong but it's not like it's not like he's running a six seven three cone. He's like a seven something three cone, like a low seven three cone. Trey Brown is the same way, except I view him as a little bit more explosive. Like the broad jump is on tape. Those dudes are dogs, man. I love I love Reed and Trey Brown. There's like what they are is they're bullies. They're just five ten bullies, but they're bullies. Yep. That's their style. Sidney Jones is good. I mean, he can press. He can be physical. But to me, Sidney Jones is like one of the rare six two whatever like twinkle toes guys out there that can change direction like crazy you talk to philly fans you talk to jaguars fans they're all rooted for sydney jones and they all thought he had a stretch of play where he was going to be really good if he could just stay healthy and get more snaps so that's where seattle's at so my my parting words with parting with dj reed is that they banked on dj reed going into 2021 based off of six games in 2020 that's what they're doing with sydney jones and trey brown going into 20 and Artie burns i was going to say Artie burns however much credit you give PFF grades, they were the top two graded cornerbacks in the final month of last season. So, yeah. So maybe the safest thing was bringing back DJ Reed, but I think that the ceiling potential is equal now. It's just maybe the floor isn't, but the potential is. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm more, if I'm going to cry, it's over my personal attachment fandom, you know, fanboying over DJ Reed, watching his journey and all right. that stuff. And I'm happy for him to earn what he did with the Jets and he gets to reunite with Robert Salas. That's all, that's all good stuff. Um, but Seattle, if, you know, they get lucky, they could be just fine at corner this year. The fresh, the, the main frustrating thing is that they keep chasing their tail at corner. You, you would like someone to stick, um, Maybe Trey Brown is that guy, and they're they're just gonna cycle in and out at right corner like they did even with you know the LOB years. So um, 
I don't know. We'll 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 see what happens. Uh, I want to talk about the guys that are still hanging out there, uh, specifically Dwayne Brown and Rashad Penny. I mean, you've also got Gerald Everett, who I think is uh, a little bit redundant at this point. Yeah. And um, I think Rasheem Green also. Uh, but the two big ones are Brown and Penny. Are you hoping they bring them back? Um. I mean, yeah, I'm not opposed to bringing them back. I, you wonder how they're going to make all the cap hits work. I don't think Penny should be too expensive. So on that note, I'm like, ride that continuity. Just find out, you know, like I'm, I, to me, I'm, I'm in favor of taking that risk with Penny. As far as Dwayne Brown goes, I think he did regress last year, but I think that he got closer to who he was in 2020 as the season went on. He started the year on the injury report despite playing through it. Um, and the tape matched that. Like, he clearly, is he regressing or is he hurt? And then he was off the injury report, and then his play improved the last eight weeks of the season. So see if you can get him back. Um, I don't know if he and Trent Brown fit together, because now that Seattle's rumored to have a workout with him, you know, maybe it's one or the other. Maybe one's a backup plan to the other. I don't know. Um, but, you know, in a vacuum, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for bringing back Trent, uh, Dwayne Brown. That said... I do think that they drafted Stone Forsythe to be his replacement. Now, that might be nonsense. He was a fifth-round pick. A lot of, um, you know, tape gurus on Twitter, draft draft heads, they all had him as like a second-rounder, though. And Yeah, I remember that. And it was a mis- mystery as to why um, he, he fell. I mean, there were no, like, reported red flags. There was no medical anything. Um, if you watch his tape, I mean, he's shutting down rookie – or he's shutting down edges that, like, are getting like five plus sacks in the league the past two years guys that got drafted um like ojalari for for the giants i mean he was shutting him down in college and i think he led the led 2021 rookies in sacks this past year so i mean forsyth is skilled i mean he's an actual prospect um i don't know if you need to be in a rush to see if he's the future if you can bring back Dwayne, do it that's my opinion what i'll say on stone forsyth is that if they cannot find a way to turn a guy with the name Stone Forsyth into a Hall of Fame offensive tackle, whole thing's a failure. Just scrap it. Yeah, start yeah again. I, that's fair. Yeah, so, yeah. Sto- yeah. Stone Forsyth sounds like a made-up name for like a really like corny adventure hero, right? Like this should be like Conan the Barbarian, Stone Forsyth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some Game of Thrones right. character, the Mountain's brother. Uh, for for me with Dwayne Brown. And this might be evolving, but originally my thought was you got to have a clear sense of what you're doing at quarterback before you decide whether to commit to to Dwayne Brown. If you're just saying, you know what, we're going to run Drew Locke out there or Geno Smith out there, and if Pete Carroll can stomach going 4-13 and 13 or whatever the outcome is, then save the money. Get sure. Forsyth his reps, let him learn, all that stuff. If you're going to make a trade or if you're going to draft a rookie, which I – do think are the two most likely scenarios you you can't put a rookie quarterback back there with what would essentially be a rookie left tackle in stone stone Forsyth. like you you gotta protect even even if it's an overpay and even if he's not still going to be there by the time this rookie quarterback really finds his wings um i i think you have i think whenever you bring in a rookie quarterback you have to prioritize making life as easy for them as possible. And that's not like a teacher's pet type of thing. Right. Just look at Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence is a perfect prospect at quarterback. You can't ask for a better combination of traits, 
personality, attitude, collegiate production than yeah. him. And they didn't do anything to make his life better. No. Not they didn't add any good receivers. Their line sucked. Like play calling was atrocious. And as a result, he had a terrible rookie year, yeah. like objectively bad. But I, I don't know how much else he could do, and I don't know how that affects his development as an NFL quarterback. You you just can't do that if you're going to draft Ritter or Malik Willis, right? And I think the same thing if you're going to pay Tannehill or Matt Ryan or Kirk Cousins or Baker Mayfield 30-something million a year, you can't have them out there getting blindsided either. So I, I think if you are going to trade for a guy or you are going to draft a guy this year, you got to bring back Dwayne Brown. Yeah, I agree. Um, now it'd be dope if if you do trade for Matt Ryan, then you know definitely bring back Dwayne Brown, but also look into getting greedy and bringing in Trent Brown, and make the cap hits work. You've got so much space for twenty twenty three. You can do man. something stupid so if you space. want. You can get really yeah. stupid. So, and I mean that in a good way, like in a fun way. So, um, yeah, this I I, I agree. Like. Stone Forsythe, even if I might have some of the highest hopes for him, I do think he's going to struggle the first month of his career whenever he gets starting reps because he's going to – the same things that happened in, in college, like him him figuring out what he can and can't get away with with his length. Sometimes he over-relies on his hands, not at the expense of good footwork, but sometimes he thinks like if he's in position, he can just lock his hands on and keep them on you. He's also pretty – he's pretty top-heavy too. Yeah, yeah. And there are some edge rushers that are just too good at keeping their chest clean. Like, they're just too good at it. So, Forsyth is going to have to, like, play around with, like, how much can I just grab on to guys and lock on? And how much do I have to, you know, game them a little bit, you know? So, uh, he's going to, and I think it will pay off in the long run, but his first month of what he plays is going to be up and down. Like, that's my prediction for him. But I think he'll, he can see through the other side. But do you want that first month to be with a rookie quarterback, to your point? So, you know. Yeah, I'm in favor of bringing back Dwayne Brown. So, Circling back to the external free agents that Seattle's brought in, we've already talked Burns a little bit. Griff, what are your thoughts in reaction to the Seahawks bringing in Austin Blythe and uh, Uchenna Nwosu? Uh Quickly on Blythe, I mean, sure, why not? He's probably better than Posick. Um, I'm, I'm a, I was a... I was um, greatly disenchanted with Ethan Posick for pretty much his entire career up until the last eight weeks of this past season where you might, you might've seen me um, screeching about it online. Uh, I, I think he's a totally different player and I don't think he's that far off than like some of, some of these other centers that we like in the league. I mean, I don't know if he just got into the good stuff. If like his agent slid him something and he said, don't ask any questions, just ingest this. His play strength, everything is technique. He's a completely different player. Make no mistake, if you go back and watch the Rashad Penny film of the last five, six weeks, Posich is kicking ass up front. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, how do I interpret this? Because for the longest time, I've been saying this guy isn't any good, but now he's. I don't know if this. I don't know if this is real. I don't know if this can project forward. I have no idea. He's a free agent. I have no idea. That said, Austin Blythe is probably safer just by rule, you know, as a, out of principle. I hope that they bring back Posick on a if they can get him back for two million and just let him compete with Blythe. And I wouldn't be shocked if he won the the training camp battle. Um, but Blythe is a really safe choice, and we also know his history with Dickerson and, and Waldron. 
So we can assume that that's a good move in and of itself, irrespective of Posick. So I'm, I'm all about the Blythe move. $4 million, sure, why the hell not, you know? Yuchenna um, Nwosu, that was a name that I did not anticipate at all. I don't even think I was aware that he was a free agent. Maybe I was and I glossed over it because I was so into the idea of Chandler Jones and Von Miller. But, you know, they're 32, 33, and they just signed deals at $17 million plus a year. I don't know if Seattle was ever going to look at that kind of money, especially for a 32-year-old. And to be clear, Nwosu in, in is two years 21. Is that right? Two years 20, I think. And I think that the most that they ever paid an edge in free agency was $9 million for one year of Ziggy Ansa. <laughs> That's ironic. Um, shout out Ziggy Anza, though. Um, so, yeah, Uchenna Nwosu. So I was trying to reserve, like, my reaction until I actually watched him. You know, novel concept, right? Uh, right off the bat, though, he gets good pressure numbers, and his tape matches his, his, his pressure numbers. He's He is, like, he is what a number two edge rusher is. Like, if you have a good four-man rush, and Uchenna Nwosu, or how should I phrase, phrase this? If you want to have a good four-man rush, you want you want to have a Uchenna Nwosu like on your defensive line is what I'm saying. So long as he's second fiddle to a Joey Bosa, you're going to have a good edge rush. So for Seattle, they've got Daryl Taylor, who they are wanting to progress into being the guy, right? And I think he absolutely has the capability for that. All easier said than done. Carlos Dunlap came on strong last year. They have him again. So between those three, I think they have a really good floor, their best floor in years at edge rush going into a season. Um, he's a fun player to watch. I think people will like him. He's a really skilled pass rusher too. I mean, he can he can do it all, like speed to power, pure speed, counters. He has really good hands. Um, and the other thing is that he um, is athletic enough to be able to drop into coverage. They're, they're playing more 3-4 this year even than they did last year, it sounds like. So you want to have your outside linebackers that are on the line of scrimmage, you want both of them to be able to rush and you want both of them to be able to drop. If you think about how, you know, it's a five-man front, three-four, right? Three interior, then two outside linebackers in the line of scrimmage. If it's a five-man front and both the edges can rush and drop, but you only rush for the super majority of your snaps, someone has to drop. So, yeah, they're still going to have to drop their guys despite what Clint Hurt said. Um, but... The interchangeability between Daryl Taylor and Uchenna Nwosu is going to be really exciting because the offensive line won't necessarily know who's the fourth rusher and who the seventh dropper is. So um, I, I like I, I think the price point is one. It's one of those rare free agency signings where a guy signs exactly for what he's worth. I hate to talk about people like what they're worth. You know, it's not my. You know what I'm saying? But like, he's exactly he's signed for exactly what the ideal signing is after having watched him. You know. Um, yeah, I just I just feel like he adds versatility to the linebacker slash edge position that Seattle just hasn't had. Right. Like we know that the defense is going to change in some respect from what we saw with Ken Norton Jr. And and I know that, you know, you've pointed out that there are actually a lot of similarities between the Fangio style defense and what Seattle was already running. But to hear uh, Desai and Clint Hurt talk about it they they do want to mix it up and what i see with Nwusu is a guy who is just so much more dynamic than any of the other linebackers that are currently on the roster you know jordan brooks excluded of course yeah he, he so i mean poor benson mayoa so he benson mayoa had good numbers at oakland when before he came to seattle 
That was because mm-hmm. all they asked him to do was hand in dirt third downs. You're rushing off the left edge. Those snaps weren't available to him in Seattle because Carlos Dunlap was getting those left edge snaps and then Daryl Taylor. So then they're asking Benson Mayoa to be like, we need you to be our early down Sam in a bear front. And, and so they had to drop him. So the reason why they had to drop him so much was because they were trying to rush Dunlap as much as possible. If they rushed Mayoa more, that would have meant dropping Dunlap even more than they already were. And they were already dropping Dunlap more than you would ever want to drop a 280 pounder. So that was just really challenging. You're putting too much on, on Mayoa. So, and you know, he doesn't have the wheels to be out in space like that. I mean, he did his best. He was a good run defender. Um, he just didn't get his chances at pass rush. Nwosu absolutely makes it just so much easier. Everything is fluid. Nothing's a headache. Um, they're probably going to reserve Dunlap for more nickel downs or clear pass situations. Um, and then in base, we're going to see Nwosu and Taylor out there more. And that's where you just maximize the versatility like you were talking about. He's going to make life so much easier for Daryl Taylor, I feel like. Absolutely. So, he, oh, here's the, the main thing about Nwosu that I didn't say. So I've been, the, the, who, whatever edge they acquire, they needs to be able to rush off the right side. Because Daryl Taylor can brush both sides, but he's better off the left side. Um, Nwosu's main thing is rushing off the right side. So that's I'm ecstatic about that, because that means we're going to see Taylor on the left side on pass downs more than we would have otherwise. Um, so I, that's that's another reason to get hyped up. Uh, I was worried, like, I was secretly hoping they'd sign Von Miller, but at the back of my head, I was going to be really annoyed because Von Miller also only rushes off the left side. So I'm thinking, like, you might Bruce Irvin, Daryl Taylor, because Bruce Irvin was another left side only guy. And then they signed Cliff Averill. That kind of killed Bruce Irvin's career, as, at least his first round trajectory, because he only got right edge snaps. And then he developed as a right edge player when he should have been left edge. Like his college highlights are all off the left side. So I was going to be like ecstatic if they signed Miller, but also really annoyed internally. Chandler Jones is my number one target because he can rush off the right side predominantly. Um, but Nwosu and Gregory were like the two guys that were realistic um, in hindsight. I wanted Gregory after assuming Jones wasn't realistic. Gregory didn't happen, but Nwosu at 10 million, like I'm all for it. This makes the team better. Um, and pass rush, in my opinion, is their, the thing that they're missing the most defensively. Um, I actually think it, it's not just the pr- pass rush production itself, but there's like a systemic downstream effect that that would give them. Um, so this is the first step. So my thing was draft one or sign one, draft one. They signed one. We got to hope that they draft one. So, yeah, yeah, it's going to be really fascinating to see kind of what what happens with the draft based on how they approach the rest of free agency. And just to put some numbers on Wosu, uh, you know, if you look at the back of his football card, you're going to see five sacks, and it's like, oh, that's that's nice, but you know, it's nothing to get super excited about. But Sacks aren't really a very sticky stat for most pass rushers. What is, is pass rush win rate. And Nwusu ranked 15th in that by uh, PFF's measurements last year. So that's that's a really high number. Some of that has to do with Bosa coming off the other side, of course. But sure. we, we shouldn't overlook just how effective a player like Nwosu can make this defense. Before we move on to the draft, uh, Griff, are there one, maybe two other guys out there that you're going to be really excited if you hear tomorrow that the Seahawks signed? So the, the one guy to the one guy to look out for now, I think, is Melvin Ingram. Um, he's another outside linebacker in base, but in, 
ironically, at 255, 260, he's actually been better as an interior pass rusher over his career, even back with the Chargers, like in his early days. And he's one of those stand-up guys, like, you know, face up over the guard, kind of like Clowney. Not that he's styled similarly, but usage-wise, like, you can use Ingram right now on third downs the way that Houston used Clowney, like, five, six years ago. Um, he's really productive. He's really productive for the Chiefs. They used him in a similar manner. I think you can get him because of his age. Um, I think you can get him for less, maybe $5 million or less. Trot him out on pass downs. Let him be part of a really sick pass rush package. You can do a lot of stunts and loops with him. But, I mean, he's 260 just straight up one-on-one with guards and just making them look like they don't belong on the field still to this day. So um, even at like 32, whatever he is. So I, I think that he's a he's a um, price point-wise like a really efficient signing they could make. And he actually like moves the needle for you. So yeah, he he's a guy that I would that I would go for. The other one last guy is Jacob Martin. They can bring back the uh, the prodigal son. Um, he was he's he's not inefficient. Like he's an okay player, and he fits the scheme perfectly. So I uh, I like Jacob Martin. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Well, this brings us to the next stage in the reimagining of this team, and that is of course the NFL draft. Seattle has a pretty impressive war chest of picks over the next two seasons, including the numbers 9, 40, 41, and 72 this year. What are you hoping they accomplish with those picks? Uh, so my id tells me to just draft defensive line the, the, the whole way through. Um, God. If they stick and pick at 9, they probably should take a cornerback. Gardner, I think he'd be the best player available. Absolute, like, Pete's wet dream uh, language there. But... Uh, um, <laughs> But if they don't go corner, I don't know. Is this tasteful profanity or is this or is this cigar thoughts? I don't know what's allowed. Um, so if they go edge, though, at nine, I assume Hutchinson will be gone. I assume Thibodeau is way out of the picture. Take George Karloftis at nine. He's 275 pounds. You can drop him in coverage in a pinch. I mean, there have been 275 pounders that have played outside linebacker in the 3-4 scheme before. But he is... He might be the best pass rusher. There's a chance he could be the best edge rusher out of this draft and all is said and done. I'm obsessed with Karloftis at nine. Um, that doesn't happen. My guy is Johnson out of Florida State. Jermaine Johnson's you, awesome. You... No, I like him a lot. So, I mean, he's – so Jermaine Johnson, for me, I think ideally Karloftis at nine, if you trade back into the teens, you should target Jermaine Johnson or Arnold Ebiketti in the high teens. Mm-hmm. And I think you come out of that. And now both of those guys rush off the right side a lot. So that's just more the merrier there. So I think either of those would be a huge win. Um, those, those are the first round options, um, the realistic ones. As you get into the second round, there are still some options. My favorite after the first like elite wave is uh, Nick Benito out of Oklahoma. Scheme fit. I think he is um, – He's so in short, he's a speed rusher, crazy bend. Um, he's, he, he ran, he ran like a four, six something with a really good 10 yard split at 248 pounds. He played in college at 240. People were concerned about his weight. He beefed up at 248 and still tested really well. My thing with some, some people are skeptical cause he's like, my main thing with Benito is that when he gets into his rip and starts to turn the corner as, as in like turn toward the quarterback to sack him. Right. So many of those lighter guys get ridden off and they need to completely destroy beat the tackle on pure speed. He can get into his rip at five yards with speed and then sustain it and end up getting to the quarterback at seven, eight yards. If just for comparison's sake, Maje Sanders at a Cincinnati similarly styled, 
if he gets into his rip at five yards, he's getting driven to 12 yards. Like there's no comparison. So his bend through contact is incredibly impressive to me, given his weight. So that's the thing that stood out to me about Daryl Taylor the most. Right. To Taylor can ride a rip all the way to the quarterback, no problem. So Benito, I would freak out if you get him in the second round. I'll be being, I'll be, you know, I'll have a drastic reaction. Um, the other guys, I like uh, Boy, excuse me if I pronounce his name wrong, Boye Mafe out of Minnesota. He's a good player. I just think he's a really high quality third rounder. Um, so he's getting like first round hype. I just don't think he has the traits, but I think he's really skilled. And I think he's like a, a late day two guy you get excited about. Another guy that is actually similar to Mafe but he's like the day three version is uh, Tyreek Smith out of OSU. He's a guy that anybody would, any team would like for the same reasons you like Jacob Martin, like all grit technique, like he's speedy, but he's not like crazy speed. Um, he just makes do with what he has. I think he's, he's a guy that'd be really fun. And um, you know, they, they ideally have would have four edges that are interchangeable. Obviously the, the, the best guys get the most snaps, but you, you have about, 400 snaps still that need to be distributed to lower level guys. They can get two or three of them. Another guy on day three is uh, Dominique Robinson or uh, and D'Angelo Malone. So those are crazy explosive bendy guys. I'm glad you mentioned edge depth because that was something that Pete Carroll recruited at USC. Uh, really, really deep reserves there so that you always had fresh legs. So that was kind of his, his two things, right? He over-recruited at running back. I think at one time he had 10 running backs on the roster at USC that were first team all state uh, in high school. And he overloads at edge rusher. And we saw that in his early Seattle days. I mean, there was just so much Hmm. investment in that position because those are positions that require short yardage explosiveness and short yardage explosiveness is the hardest thing to repeat i mean anyone that's run any type of wind sprints or done any kind of like tabata workouts no like yeah. that gasses you really quickly these short spurts of energy and it would be nice to see them get really deep there i want to play a little game do a little game theory here all right you're john schneider you've got the ninth pick malik willis is there desmond ritter is there Karloftis is there gardner is there what are you doing so ooh. <laughs> that's really hard. So my um, if they're all there, you trade down. <laughs> yeah, that's what it'll do, right? You probably will trade down. Can't find it. Can't find a trade partner. So I, I seriously think, in my heart Son of hearts, of bitch. <laughs> the, the the absolute safest thing they can do is draft Desmond Ritter right there. It's maybe low ceiling, but it's the highest floor thing they can do. Outside of that. My, again, my id would tell me draft George Karloftis, but then I think the smartest thing they can do is draft Gardner. I mean, okay, you've got Trey Brown, you've got Sidney Jones, you've got Artie Burns. Even if you have the most optimistic, rosy view of those three, and I think we have a fairly, like, the, 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 the realistic version of the optimistic version, right? We're not getting too crazy with it. What if you added Jalen Ramsey to that group? Would you do that? I mean, you would, right? Even if you think that that that, that group can take you far. He Gardner's, really does look like he could be that good. He's a freak, man. So, I mean, Gardner, I think Karloftis is a freak too, but Gardner might be the safest pick. You probably, I think you got to um, value an elite corner over an elite edge. Um, but my heart says Karloftis. So I've given you three answers. So it's a cop out. The, the safest thing you can do is Ritter. 
I think that the next safest thing you can do or smartest thing you can do is is um, Gardner. And then from, I assume Stingley won't be there, but I think Gardner fits them better anyway. And then from there, it'd be Karloftis. Um, that's me. All right. Hey, what, man, the, what the do you pick think, is though? due. The pick is due. What oh, name are you putting due? on that card? Ritter, Desmond Ritter. All right. All right. Okay. I'm try- I'm not trying to get fired. So I'll take <laughs> yeah, if okay. I was willing to get fired, I'd go Karloftis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ritter over, over Malik. All right. So uh, you were kind enough to ask me what I would do. I would probably go with Malik Willis in that situation. But if I felt if I if I felt there was a good chance Ritter could slide to forty, then I would go with Gardner, and and that would be a little bit of of a hedge. You know what? I'm going to say that I would take Gardner if he's there, and the reason for it is I don't feel like I have to draft a quarterback this year. One thing sure. about Seattle's position is they can just ride this out for a year, uh, and then take their shot in 2023, which is supposed to be an absolutely loaded class, bunch of great quarterbacks coming out, all of that stuff. So I am probably going Gardner there. Yeah, and to your point, they'll have the capital to move up next year. So f- further along with your line of thinking, if you take Gardner at nine, and you know we assume Willis is out of the picture by that point, right? And then you're then hoping, well, could Ritter drop to 40? They can easily move up into the late first round and take Ritter if they really have a high eval on him. And then you still have, you know, some day two picks to get some fun guys. Honestly, if you came out of the first two days and all you had was Gardner and Ritter, that's that would yeah. be a success. Yeah. And then th- there are day three defensive linemen even. I mean, day two defensive linemen, day three. Um, So... Yeah, you can you can mix it around. Now they were connected to uh, some offensive tackles too. So who knows what they do, man? I mean, they could take Charles Cross at nine for all we know. Like, yeah, we. But we'll, there's we'll just see. so many. There's they haven't had the myriad of <laughs> yeah. potential directions in front of them in ten years like this. I mean, I you know of course we like the draft and we're football fans, we're Seahawks fans, we're invested sure. in the draft, but it's been nothing like my engagement with the process this year because yeah look every year there's really only we we say this all the time on the show there aren't 32 round one talents in a given nfl draft but you have to draft 32 players in the first round there's usually like 16 to 20 maybe and usually seattle is picking after that which is why I think you've seen them trade back so often, right? And avoid giving that first round contract to a second round talent. But I think that with this one, it's like, okay, they've got the high draft capital. They can they can draft a household name for football fans for the first time in forever. Uh, but it's also, you know, talking with people like yourself, like Danny Kelly, uh, yeah. Nate Tice, people who understand the draft much deeper than I do. It sounds like this is really, really deep in the trenches. And I would be fine with corner, get a quarterback, get a cornerback, and then use your other six or seven picks just up front and see what you got. It's a really good day two edge class. I think like super high end, it's a little lackluster at edge. Like as in what I mean by that is Hutchinson to me is not a number one overall guy. He's like a... He's like, he should be drafted between 7 and 12 type of guy. And then I feel the same way about Karloftis. Thibodeau is the only guy that would like, I could see him going top three other years, right? But that said, they're still firm, firm first-round picks. But yeah, day two, 
or even the bottom of, of, of round one, Jermaine Johnson, Ebiketti. Um, and then day two, you got, you got a lot of guys that are like, I mean, every year edge gets drafted that gets a second contract or gets drafted in the second round, third round, fourth round that gets a second contract eventually. Like that happens every year, right? Almost every year. Zadarius Smith, Matthew Judon, like those guys yep. are going to be in this draft. So which one is it, right? Mm-hmm. I think Nick Benito could be that guy. You know, I'm not going to put it past Mafi. Um, I mean, th- there's a lot of them. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, you can definitely do, do damage on day two, day three. Uh, another guy that I'm obsessed with, um, he's a five tech, you know, as the saying goes, is uh, Josh Pascal out of Kentucky. Yeah, that you talk about. So he's. Right now he's he he cut down to two sixty eight for the combine, but he he's two eighty and his first step is so explosive. And you talk about first step short area explosiveness early, right? That's all what Josh Josh Pascal is. I mean, speed to power, like two, three steps in power, a tackle. And then he, he can rush inside on guards. So I mean he's a guy that, you know, he probably falls to like the fourth round, I think, but you can get him early day three and you can be really happy. Um, Logan Hall is another big end that I think they could take on day two, but with with um, acquiring Shelby Harris though, that might put them out of the market for a a uh, two eighty two ninety pounder. You know, early it might be later for that, so that they might not go after Hall. But in a vacuum, he's a scheme fit. So I don't know. Griff, I gotta say, it feels great hearing you back in your wheelhouse hunting for five <laughs> techs and talking about <laughs> defensive linemen. So I have one last question for you. You guys were talking just a, just a couple minutes ago about the deep stable of pass rushers that Pete Carroll accumulated while he was at USC, the beginning of his tenure in Seattle. I think it's fair to say that their pass rush has been pretty lackluster over the last several years. It's kind yeah. of been a point of needed improvement every offseason on repeat. Do you think that the reason that Pete Carroll's defenses have struggled in recent years, relatively speaking, struggled? Sure is due to the fact that he sold out and succumbed to the bribery of big quarterback and lost his edge. And I didn't even mean for that to be a pun. That was actually unintentional. <laughs> yeah. So we, 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 I think Pete deserves a deeper audit of his, um, of his history with quarterbacks. I mean, he's been recruiting five stars for, well, I mean, he's been recruiting five, he recruited five star after five star at college. He paid Russell Wilson twice. I mean, yeah, man, we should. He needs to. He might need to um, turn in his de- defensive guy card. Um, yeah, we're merely asking questions. Yeah, here, we're just right? asking questions. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm still not over them trading Michael Bennett if you... <laughs> 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 um, for a fifth round pick, if you can believe it. So he's available. He he is available. <laughs> he could probably suit up and still do some damage. Um, they they need to spam pass rush. Because that's the, really not not to change the subject, but I really think if they can maintain the floor of what they had in their back seven last year, that includes Jamal Adams, that I think he was part of that. Um, you know, Ryan Neal has depth everyone. I think they have a top 10 back seven. And I know a lot of people think that's insane, but their numbers on targets over 10 yards is really good. And I think Jordan Brooks is a huge part of that. I think Ugo Amadi in zone coverage specifically was a huge part of that. Um where they struggled was basically yards after the catch on first level pass attempts. And the reason why they were so bad is because as they transitioned to too high or, and really it wasn't just too high. It was, it was um, even when they were playing cover three, 
but the the pass rush was so lackluster that the second level was having to drop deeper and for longer than they would otherwise. So by the time the ball actually connects to the running back in the flat, there's just simply more yards of distance in between him and the linebackers than there would have been otherwise if the pass rush forced the quarterback to that decision earlier. Then the the second level would be able to rally and tackle earlier. And that's really, to me, that would solve their yak issue and completely unlock their defense. Because I think, I mean, statistically, they gave, they gave up like the fifth fewest amount of explosive passes. They gave up the... They gave up the second fewest pass attempts between yards 10 and 20. So the results when they were targeted were fluctuated. But to me, that indicates that they were the second level wasn't very open or targetable against them. Again, I think Jordan Brooks is a huge part of that. Ugo Amadi um, and the and the, uh, the safeties as well and the cornerbacks too at the catch point on the perimeter. But to me, I think, and I think that they think, lock down our back seven. I think that they have some hope in Cody Barn, at least in coverage, but you know, you still need to see more. Get some pass rush and you have you're there. You've arrived. Um Uchenna Nuosu isn't enough to do that alone. You still need to add a guy in the draft. Um you kind of just have to pray and hope that Daryl Taylor progresses, pray and hope that Dunlap has, you know, plays like he did the the last half of the season for the full the full season. And, you know, cross your fingers a little bit. But I think the defense with the roster as is and with the potential to add in some more guys up front, I think they have the potential to be top 10, not only in points, but, you know, in the more advanced measures as well. So, yeah, get some some pass rush. It's on them to do it, though. It's just you you can't have enough of it. And this is a perfect draft, a perfect amount of cap space to really attack it. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked before about how every offense, you know, looks good regardless of scheme if your line is kicking ass. And I think that's the same for defensive scheme too. If you're generating yeah. pass rush, then no matter what you're doing with the back seven, it's going to look good because you're stressing the quarterback. Number one thing you can do on defense is stress the quarterback. Seattle has not been stressing quarterbacks out for a no. while. So I'm, I'm really hoping to see that change and, and, you know, it's we, we could keep doing this, but uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Very, very insightful. Uh, Griff, I really do appreciate you jumping into the fray with us. And before we let you get out of here, why don't you tell the listeners where they can get more of you? Oh, um, yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter if you so choose uh, at uh, C Mike's Spin Move. That's C M I K E S S P I N M O V E. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, Kristen Michaels spin move in the open field personified. That's, you know, if that needed an explainer. Um, and uh, I also do a podcast with my with my with my buddy Maddie F. Brown called Seattle Overload. You can just search on Twitter. It'll show that up. shit will make you um, smart. It's making us dumber, though. We're not we're, we're losing our brains, I think. Um, um, yeah. So that that's that's where you can find me if you want. Listen, it, Griff is on the absolute short list of people you should be following with Seahawks Twitter. One, he's hilarious on there. Two, he just sees the game differently than almost anybody else that I follow or that I talk with. So his insight is incredibly appreciated. It has certainly made me a better fan of the team, a better fan of the sport, a better writer, and a better commentator on it. So uh, make sure you're following him at at see Mike spin move and before we sign off I do want to give some oxygen to a Seattle legend 
His release was announced right after we finished recording last week, and we would be remiss not to give him some flowers. Bobby Wagner was everything you could ever want from a player. A first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the best ever at his position, an unquestioned, drama-free leader of the clubhouse, and one of the greatest Seahawks who has ever lived. Bobby, we are going to miss you. Thank you for everything, and I'll be cheering for whatever team you land on. For those of you listening, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Feel free to give us a follow on social media as well. You can find me on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is at, at Mike Barwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave us a quick review. Y'all have been incredible with your support, and we are so, so grateful for that. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Yeah.